Did you know our hearts connect deeply wherever you and I are in the world? Hi, I'm Andrea Petrut. Here at Healing Through Oneness Podcast, together we find what makes us unique and what keeps us united. We learn of past wounds and ways to heal. We release old stories and create new, empowering realities that serve us now. Join me and my guests every Wednesday and Friday to recognize the truth within, discover why you are precious, connect with what sets you apart, and allow the world to welcome you and resonate with your heart. We are one. Good morning, Canadians. Hello, world. This is episode 15 for Healing Through Oneness podcast. And we have here a very special guest because I want to start a new kind of episodes every month and inviting Indigenous voices, first in Canada, and then we're going to expand it to North America and other parts of the world. And I have a friend today who I met at the Speaker Slam online competition. When I heard her story, I was very moved in many, many ways. And I would like her to welcome Samantha. I would like her to um, introduce herself I don't want to ruin her family name, so I will just let her pronounce it because it sounds so beautiful with her voice. And to introduce as she does with her own voice and who she is and how she wants us to know about her. Welcome, Samantha. Miigwech. Thank you. So my English name is Samantha Kenosha Meg. And uh, Kenoshimig is actually um, an Ojibwe Odawa uh, last name from Canada. And uh, it, it has two meanings. One, it refers to either the pike, which is a fish, um, as in Genoshe, or um, it refers to uh, the movement of a, body, of a body in the water that uh, swims like a fish, but is not a fish. Uh, so it depends on who you ask and how, how far back you can go in the Ojibwe language uh, to understand some of those things. Um, my, my other name is uh, Zhao Nodin, and that means South Wind. And uh, in the Ojibwe culture, uh, often our names have meanings that have a lot to do with the life's work that we do or finding our own purpose in our communities. And for me, the South Wind is uh, kind of twofold. One, it shows or it talks about um, how it can be a gentle summer breeze and how that can... Um, you know, it kind of it's it's really calming and soothing in the in the summertime, um, but also the south wind, when mixed with the north wind, can create massive storms. Um, and so, understanding those two aspects of the name south wind are the things that you know it's part of my job to learn that about myself and about does that really have an effect on the world and uh, and my own environment? <clears throat> Excuse me. The other part of introductions for ourselves is we talk about where where we're from and our community. And uh, I'm from the Turtle Clan, and uh, my communities are Wikwemko and Chiging on Manitoulin Island in Canada. And uh, I grew up 
them, but I grew up in the urban environment in the city of Sudbury. Um, so that's a little bit different, um, but that's how, that's generally how I'd introduce myself. And uh, I wanna uh, thank Andrea for having me as a guest here today um, to talk about uh, the importance of what September 30th means to me in Canada and to my family and what it is that I'm trying to do. Um, so just start off by saying that uh, it's, we call it, we call it Orange Shirt Day. And Orange Shirt Day is in memory of a uh, residential school survivor who attended school. She was very proud to wear an orange shirt when she went to school. And uh, when she arrived, um, they took it away from her and they never gave it back. And it became this kind of national symbol for us to say, you know what, you know, we can, we can wear these things. We can wear what we want. We can honor the memory of school survivors and people who didn't make it home and those who did. And so, so we use the term, you know, the orange shirt day. As you can see, I, I have my orange shirt on today. And uh, there's many lovely designs from across the country from a lot of local Indigenous artists who work with companies, work with organizations, and, and just to promote the, the awareness of what that means. Um, the federal government in Canada has decided to call it the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And that comes out of the... Um, that comes out of the, the work that was done. There was a commission that looked at the at what residential school schools had done to the Indigenous population in Canada and um, what were some of the effects of that. And they had a whole commission and they heard from survivors across the country about, you know, what their experience was, what they would like to change. Is there anything that we can do about it? And if you listen to a lot of the messages coming out of, out of the, um, a lot of the events that are happening today, it's nobody wants to have those traumas repeated and nobody wants our children to have um, those kind of horrific experiences. And what is it that we can do to support and make things better and improve things? And, and uh, you know, and how do we do that? Um, a lot of it is tied to culture and tied to identity and tied to people being able to reconnect with some of those divisions and interruptions in family and community that have occurred over the last um, hundred years or so, um, you know, I mean, the last residential school in Canada closed and I think it was 1996, which wasn't that long ago, if we think about it. Um, you know, that's pretty unfortunate. And uh, I speak, I speak a lot about, about what it means and what it means to me because my dad attended residential school. And only this last year, I found out that my grandmother, his mother actually also attended residential school. So there's two, two of my generations behind me that did um, my other attended day school uh, growing up too. So those are some of these things that were systematically done to the Indigenous population here uh, in Canada and horrible experience, but what are we going to do about it now? I, I would like to breathe into that because um, you know, even for me, who have no connection, um, when you're empathic, when you're compassionate, when you have a heart and you're open to other people, just hearing that um, breaks your heart. Mm -hmm. Samantha, you and I, before we had this live, we discussed about different things. Um, 
related to your experience as a native person in your own country, on your own land, on the land that you are a steward on. How do you feel? And I remember a story you shared, if you would like to share it again, so uh, our viewers and listeners can um, hear from your experience how some situations are which show that there is still there are still big issues and there is still a need for change in people's mentality and uh, it shows where we are at today after so many years of where we say oh let this this thing passed i believe from your story or your stories that it hasn't at all from some points of view. I think that's that's important. And right now my my mind is drawing a blank as to which stories we were talking about. The one where you and your husband, maybe 10 years ago, you were in Toronto, and I think in your theory, maybe even in my neighborhood at LCBO. And what happened when both of you were going to the store and your husband didn't touch oh. anything. Right, that's uh, that. That is an interesting story. So, um, just you know, before I get into that story, what actually came up when as we were talking um, were the names, the names that were given to the children that went to residential schools, and this whole association with identity. Because I want to touch on the on the disruption that occurred, how it's impacting some of our our people today, and I think that's and then I'm go back to that story as well. But what, what, what occurred to me is um, my dad and my uncle would talk about residential school. They talked about how my uncle, who was older than my dad, attended. Um, they, they called him Sam, but that wasn't his name. His name, his name was actually uh, Charles, Charles William, but, um, but they didn't call him that. And I think that this is actually something that happened to a lot of people and a lot of individuals. Because, you know, you had the name that you were born with, the name from your family. And then when you went to another place that wasn't the best, healthiest, happiest place, you took on other forms. It's still you, but you took on other forms of your identity. So that acceptance of names that other people that were there with you. So other children would have picked up on this and called them that. So my uncle's name was Sam. And then, um, and then a couple of years, a year later, I think my dad went to the same residential school as my uncle. And when my dad arrived, they didn't call him Ray. They didn't call him by his first name. They called him Sam as well. But because my uncle was on there, they called him Big Sam. And then they called my dad Little Sam. So they had these distinguishing names that were not their own when they were at school. And they didn't carry them after that. After they left school, they often didn't keep those names. But I think that also that has a lot to do with some of the kids who were very, very young when they went. And when they couldn't go back home and they couldn't go back to their families, they didn't go back to their to their original names. They adopted those names that they got in residential school and they took those on. And that is why I think some of our young people who had grandparents attend schools, their grandparents won't talk about the experience. They won't talk about how horrific it was for them. And they they adopted a new identity that was, was safe for them, that they could do and they could they could move on with that. And I think that is also part of the difficult conversation about, well, what did it really do? And we don't have these these conversations about the individuals and the families. And I think that that is also part of it. Um, you know, as also part of 
part of indigenous culture, part of Ojibwe culture, we like to laugh a lot. And we like to, we like to, we don't take things as seriously as we should sometimes, I think. But um, I thought it was funny when I first started talking about residential schools about 20 years ago, um, maybe longer, 25 years ago. I was like, oh, so my uncle was big Sam, my dad was little Sam, and I'm girl Sam because it was my dad's daughter and, and my name is Samantha, but I also go by Sam. So I'm like, I don't, I mean, I don't think that has anything to do with it, but we do also take on nicknames or shortened forms of our names in different situations. And, you know, people always ask me, do you want to be called Samantha or Sam? And I always introduce myself formally as I'm Samantha Kenoshime. But then after a conversation, I'm Sam. And it's it's such a smooth transition that it just becomes one of those, one of those things. And I think that that is, you know, interesting component of identity associated with residential schools and how they interrupted the family and communities to have what we have today. Interesting. Can I, can I ask you here, um, how do your, you know, your uncle, your dad, how did, how do they feel now? How do they see now this, this part of their identity related to their name? Uh, well, my uncle has passed on now, so I can't really ask him about it. I probably could have a conversation with my dad about it. But I will say that when we first started talking about residential school, even with my dad and my uncle, they had a very, very descriptive narrative that they would talk about. They would only talk about certain things that occurred. They would only refer to aspects of when they were in school in the very beginning. Now, especially because my dad is much older now, he's he shared a lot more about his experience with us. Um, and it's it's just like I, I just I find it unbelievable sometimes how how his experience, which is his experience and it's his life. But how does how does that affect me um, when that's not my story? But I've inherited some of those um, not behaviors, but I've inherited something from that. And what does that look like? And that's kind of that's kind of how we try to look at it today because we don't <clears throat> one we don't want to dwell on the the horrible and the traumatic experiences because it, I mean it is painful to talk about sometimes and it's not the easiest thing to do. But how is it that we're going to make things better? Like one of the things my dad says, um, I said, well, what do you want? What do you want the future to know? What do you want people to know now about your experience? And he says, I really don't want my grandkids to experience the racism that he experienced. And so I'm gonna circle back to that story about being in the LCBO um, store about, about, I'm gonna say probably 15 years ago now, maybe longer. Um, and uh, my husband and I were headed to a dinner party at the time and the request was, can you pick up a bottle of wine on our way, do that and then, and then we'll go there. So we went into this liquor store and it was in North York. Um, and uh, we walk in and I, because I have fair skin, I have a very different experience than my husband who is dark skinned, has a long braid, you know, looks very stereotypical indigenous native Ojibwe man in, in Canada. And so when we walked in, he, you know, when you're with somebody for a while, you kind of have your own little, uh, not, not really code way of talking, but if he says something to me or if he gives me a certain look, I'll, I'll pay attention to something differently. And, and that's exactly what happened in this store because we were walking around and I was looking for a specific, um, a specific wine. And he said, oh, he's like, I think he elbowed me like 
look over there. And so I, I looked up and across a couple aisles over, you could see um, young Caucasian um, males stuffing bottles down their pants. But the security guards in the store only had eyes for my husband. They were watching him. They were watching him walk up and down the aisles, not touching anything, just following me basically. And the those young guys, they grabbed their stuff, they grabbed a small bottle of something, paid for their stuff and left. So while they're paying attention to my husband, you know, they're being they're being robbed. And it's like, those are actually some of the experiences that we still have today. I don't have them, and I see them when I'm with my husband when we're out somewhere, you know, the the um you're in a department store, you're in a larger store, or even a Dollarama, like a dollar store now. And you'll hear over the loudspeaker, uh, security, you know, scan section 25 or whatever. And those are things that I sort of started to become a little bit more aware of because of his experiences, not because of mine. So I think, you know, hearing my dad talk about that and not wanting racism to affect his grandkids, we still have a long way to go and a, a lot of work to do um, to address those kinds of things. Um, I remember that when you first shared the story, I was thinking of the stereotypes we have in Romania, where I come from, regarding the gypsies or Roma people. They they call themselves, some of them prefer to call themselves gypsies. They are very proud of the word gypsy. Some of them are very proud of the word Roma. So I, that's why I use both names. And... Um, you know, gypsies are nomads, so somehow those who for generations in Romania, you know, lived there, maybe moved from the areas very close by our neighbors, uh, they still feel that they belong there, not the gypsies, and the skin is different, the color of the skin of the gypsies is a bit darker, mm -hmm. and I mean, we are white, they are dark, uh, and it's the stereotypes came in Romania because there were some people and still are who some gypsies, I mean, or Roma who uh, are not showing up with integrity, are not um, role models, right? And there is like there's proof for that. So let's say that the stereotype in Romania has a foundation, right? While um, and, of, and there are beautiful gypsies, beautiful Romas, very gifted, talented. So there are people and people like in every population, right? Mm -hmm. But we have the biases based on our experience, documentaries, movies, what other people say and all of that. And in here in Canada, I, I see also uh, this racism and, and bias and stereotypes. But I, I feel that, uh, clearly a different foundation for it. It's, it's not in what people have done. It's actually the opposite. Like you are mistreated. It's the opposite. Instead of being mindful of you and your history, your culture and everything, like treating you with kindness, like any other human being here, uh, I see that you receive the opposite um, attitude. Mm -hmm. which makes it even worse. Like, you tell me, I'm just making an observation now of I'm wondering how it feels like to be home, 
home in the land you will live on, you've lived on for generations, to have a personal or a knowing that somebody in your family for many generations has been traumatized in so many ways we can't even describe, imagine. And nowadays, when the world should know better and do better, you are also like re-traumatized or traumatized with other stuff by being mistreated, misunderstood, and uh, is it racialized the word? Racialized, racialized right? yeah. In your own country, home, where you belong. You know, feeling like I'm imagining, I'm wondering, do you feel like a minority, not just in the sense that people say, but which is, I think it's, I don't think it's, um, anyway, just the word minority for indigenous, looking at an indigenous person for me is like, how can we feel that, say that? But anyway, I understand why we use that. <clears throat> so feeling a minority, are you, how do you feel? when you are just a small part, ignored, re-traumatized, still not heard, like how do you feel? What, what's there for you? That's, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. And in terms of there's different aspects that we can talk about it. And for me, when somebody says, how do you feel? I want to not talk about my feelings. I want to not be vulnerable and talk about how it breaks my heart so that people experience this. I worry about my children who are not as fair as I am. I worry about, you know, other kids who have these experiences where if you're a little, a little brown face, you know, automatically you have, there's a certain experience that goes along with that, that I don't have, but I know that my children will and that there are other children out there that will have these experiences. And when we talk about, you know, people in this country, in Canada, and we are, you know, indigenous population is not very, very large. Um, but we are like attached to the land and what, are, what do those things mean? Um, I remember because I, I, a lot of people would travel through my parents' home um, when I was growing up. Uh, lots of indigenous people from across the country would stop in, they would sit down, they would visit. And this is, you know, in the 1980s. And we don't have that the way we used to. But my mom and, and a lot of these people would talk about how even if, you know, a lot of people came to Canada because they were escaping mistreatment in other countries. But where can we go as Indigenous Canadians, as Ojibwe people, anywhere in the world? And we're not going to go somewhere else in the world. We're not going to leave our land to go displace another group of people in another land. Because, we, one, we shouldn't have to do that. You know, in this day and age, that shouldn't be a possibility. But it's also... How, you know, if there's this underlying caring for, for everyone. We, we want to make, we want people to, to do well, to be happy, to not have these horrible experiences. And because we've had these terrible experiences, we don't want other people to experience that as well. So there's like this, always this like balance that we, we have to, we exist within in that there's things that are really harmful and really hurtful, but we don't necessarily want to return the same harm and hurt onto somebody else or pass it on to somebody else, which is why I think a lot of Indigenous people who are, you know, working on their own healing, I have to work on my own myself, but when you work on that healing, it, it's helpful, but I also don't want my children to inherit, you know, my bad habits or how I feel about certain things. So it's this really, this 
really large piece of self-reflection of how, how your family came to be where they are, where they are, where they are, all of these things. And you think about that in terms of the larger community. You know, why did I grow up in Sudbury? Why do I live in Barrie right now? Why am I in the position that I'm in right now? And it's not just, well, because I, I wanted to. Most of the time it's like, for people like myself, we step into roles because we have the capacity and we want to make a difference in other people's lives. And so we take on that little bit of uh, extra challenges by working in, in these different positions, but also keeping in mind that there are so many people because of the school experience, the residential schools, the 60s scoop, all of these, these continued systematic um, attacks on the family and community system of Indigenous people that there are so many people that need to reconnect so many people that are trying to reclaim their identity, reclaim their connections to community. And I think that's really important. But at the same time, we can't dismiss and discount the people who have been there all along trying to maintain those ties and trying to keep that community um, together. I feel like we're going around in lots of circles. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm wondering now, because for me, even if I haven't been raised in a culture like yours, where, you know, this episode is, is, is called Seven Generations Before and After, as, as you wished, and this notion of this idea, this concept of thinking seven generations before and seven generations after you, so thinking of the this of my understanding i'm going to tell you my understanding and i would love to hear your understanding on that this is very important to hear my understanding is that um we have a connection with our ancestors whether we know them or not whether we know their history or not whether we have ever heard something about them or not they are in our bones wherever we go we there is a connection with them and they have passed on something to us, even if they haven't really gave us words or experiences or books to read about them. And we can tap into their wisdom, their knowledge, their gifts somehow. Um, and also, uh, for me, seven generations before means look at your history. Look at the history of your, look at your life, look at the, the family, the culture you've been, your country, the world, look and learn. There is something to learn there. There's something to take that you can use in the present. And in terms of the after, the seven generations after, what's the legacy you're leaving? And mm -hmm. I'm thinking of what you said before, you know, this idea of, uh, working with the trauma that you personally had or an indigenous person anybody had and also thinking of what you can leave to the others how can you empower them how can you support them what can you give them so that they have a better experience you know i believe that um and again please share your uh, opinion on that your thoughts on that i believe that while we're working with our own things and to heal to shift to transform to do better be better and have wisdom 
we're also having the worries and the thoughts of what ifs and all the other things we don't want our children uh, and everybody else after us to leave. And in the same time, we are thinking of what we want them to live, like the negative and the positive in the same time while we're healing ourselves. So there's a lot, there are lots of pieces in there for the elders today and for you and for us parents or whoever, you know, um, any individual uh, actually. So um, what does seven generations before and after mean to you personally and uh, to your culture and how, you know, if there is something that you see common with other nations in Canada or, you know, if you can, I know we are going in circles here and so we can take the smaller circle which is you as an individual then grow into your culture and then maybe see it wider in, in canada what would you know we can talk about the impact on on canada what can canada do better what can we the rest of us who are not indigenous can do or what can we take this is what i want to learn what can we take from you as an individual from your culture from your vision and the concept to uh, make our lives better, to be better as humans, and also to support our community in Canada or wherever we are? I think that's a good question. Um, I think that the concept of seven generations before and after me, that situates, that situates me as an individual in this whole large world, within my family, within my community, within my nation, and within the country that I live in. And Part of the whole idea of the thought behind that is seven generations ago, my ancestors, your ancestors were making decisions, whether your ancestors knew it or not, they were in that process of doing something. So I look back and I think about um, the treaties that were signed between Canada and the crown, um, the British crown. You know, there were decisions that were made at that time. Those were political and those were based on how to, you know, acquire land for um, for the for the British that were going to come and occupy these lands. So there was things there. There was relationships that were established. And, and that's why we talk about what was the intention of those things happening at that time. And then things change and people forget things and we decide to ignore certain aspects of relationships and follow different paths. And I think that's why we ended up where we are today because the subsequent generations, we always had traditions that were passed down through storytelling and through talking to the younger generations. And we always had a mixture of people at gatherings so that we would have young children hearing stories, you'd have teenagers hearing stories, you'd have parents hearing stories. And, and that transmission of knowledge through the seven generations is what kind of generates the next, the next part so that I can look at myself today and think the treaties were signed. They haven't been honored. Um, things changed. We went from um, British British rule. We went over to um, you know when Canada created the constitution to become an you know an independent country, but still part of the Commonwealth. There's still these rules that exist. And now, what does that mean? Because now we have things on a hugely global scale. Like you said, you have uh, listeners from all over the world. You know, 20 years ago, this wouldn't have been possible to talk in this format live today, you know, here and somebody could be listening around the world. And so those kinds of things change. So now 
what is the work that I'm going to be doing, you know, for the next seven generations? And I'm not just thinking about, you know, my own lineage, but what does this mean for the planet? What does this mean? Um, you know, I think it's fascinating that a city like Toronto, the way it exists right now, and it's only a few hundred, you know, a couple hundred years old, but all of the rivers from North Toronto that feed into the Great Lakes, those are now all underground. You know, they, they weren't before. They were surface level, but they had to move things like that and change the landscape in order for the people and the industries and all the people to, to grow and to live in the city of Toronto. And there's so many other places like that where if there's new development in certain areas, um, they're going to have to bury the rivers. They're going to have to bury those uh, water things to change the landscape. So what does that changing the landscape for the purpose of you know, growing a city now, what is that going to look like in 50 years and 100 years? You know, I don't have the answers to that. I'm not a, I'm not a huge planner. But when you think about moving something on the landscape like that, like, what does it do? You can look at the same thing, like open pit mining, how that's really a huge scar on the surface of our planet, wherever they do that kind of mining, and it just strips everything down. And can we reclaim it? Yes, but it does take a long, long time for that to happen. You know, we're just the extraction and the destruction that goes with taking stuff out of the earth. You know, there's waste products, there's the desired gold or, or silver or copper or whatever element we're looking for um, as part of the industry. But what happens when you remove that? What happens to that piece of the earth when that is taken out? You know, how long does it take for it to become reclaimed, for it to be um, usable earth again for people to live on? You know, we don't have those kinds of things. So when I think in terms of, of those kinds of, of ideas and thoughts, it's for me, it's an empowering process because and I get to learn and know more about my environment, about the environment my children are in. Like, I can't make predictions for the future in terms of what it's going to be like for them. But they are very familiar with tablets, laptops. You know, they do, my daughter uses Google Chats, all of these little methods of communication that we, you know, we didn't have 30 years ago. You know, I remember when email, I'm old enough to remember when email first came out and how that was, you know, it revolutionizing people stopped sending letters as much, but everybody who's older now reminisces about what it was like to get a letter. So it's, you know, it's about looking at how those changes occur over time and then figuring out, you know, well, what is it that we want to do? Um, and the other part I think is a little bit challenging for, for me, um, is I want to see things happen fast. I want to see things happen now. I want to now, but what our elders tell us, you know, is we actually have to have patience. I don't want patience. I don't want to have patience, but it's, it's in knowing that even the decisions that we make today, we may not see the results of them. And that's a really difficult concept for us to grasp because why am I going to do something when I don't know what the outcome is? You know, and it's like, well, I don't know what the outcome is, but maybe I don't have all the information or maybe somebody else who is better equipped to do some of this kind of work will be able to step in and say, oh, based on what you said, I, I think we can move forward in this aspect. And so I think that's why um, not only with the seven generations component, but the idea that our, our us as individuals, we have unique gifts to contribute to our families and communities. And that some people are great speakers, some people are super shy, but can do all the technical stuff in the background. And, you know, when we get to focus in on those individual gifts, then, you know, one, it's like, 
there's a there's a pride and a happiness that goes along with being able to accomplish and do something well. And it's like, whoa, you know, like I did that. You know, I, I enjoy uh, running five kilometer races. A lot of people say, well, um, what, what about doing a 10K? I'm like, no, no, I'm going to stick with the 5K. I like the idea of doing a 10K, but but I don't know that I can commit and input the amount of training required to do that, to run the 10K. A lot of people will say, well, it's just a little extra here and there, but I'm going to stick with the 5K because I can do that fairly well. And it's recognizing those kinds of things. What are your own individual strengths? What are your own individual things and how we develop those and how we support our younger people or children to develop those skills as they're growing up because we don't we don't necessarily wait for them to be 18 for them to decide what they're going to do with their life if they're going to go to school if they're going to work if they're going to do something else we pay attention to them when they're little we look at what they gravitate towards we look at what interests of you know are starting to develop in them so that we can support them and that requires you know us as parents to be aware of our own needs and our own gifts in, in observing and watching our younger children and how that we can how we can support them uh, to grow up and develop. Natural stopping point. <laughs> that's uh, that's very important. It's it's something that everybody can can take and use in their own life. Thank you for for sharing that and and expanding it in, in such a beautiful way. Um, yeah um so many so many things come up um and i i have two two important aspects i want to bring and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna leave to the end uh the very native friendship center that um you are uh, for which you are an executive director Mm -hmm. uh, there is something that uh, I would like us to touch upon. But before that, you know, I was reading some comments on Facebook um, on uh, Meti, um, Meti Native here in Canada. And <clears throat> the people commenting were talking about, I, I think they were Indigenous voices too, they were talking about land, uh, you know, and there are two aspects here for me as an immigrant woman in Canada um, that I am aware of, but not at the depth that you are aware of. So I'm just going to touch upon a bit what uh, how, what I see. There's two aspects. One is the land acknowledgement, and you touched upon the treaty part. And uh, the, the other one is giving back the land. If I'm not sure this is uh, the right way to put it, but the idea is in Canada, um, not everybody's doing this, but at least uh, the government is doing it. Like everywhere, I don't know if everywhere, but there are places where, like, City of Toronto mentioned land acknowledgement. All the uh, nations and treaties and and everything. One is that enough, and what is enough for? If it is enough for something, what is enough for from your point of view? And the other question is related to. Um, what does it mean for you personally and if you also have a, the perspective from your culture what does it mean um to get your land back is this an idea you're thinking of and i will say just one thing in the comment that struck me um 
the person was saying like, you know, many people see it as, oh, we want you, we want them out of their houses so we can take over. That, that would be nice, but it's not about that. It, it felt more like uh, as the governmental part, because it's the, the Canada is not ruled by the indigenous peoples. So this is what I understood from the comment. How do you see things? What is your um, what is your view? I wouldn't say position. I would say view. What is your view on land acknowledgement, and what does it mean to you? What would be the vision of the indigenous people peoples? Sorry, uh, having the land back. Like what if you know today is the uh, national day for truth and reconciliation which in 2019, when I was at a powwow, um, uh, one of the elders, one of the chiefs said, you know, should be reconciliation. I mean, that was the name of the powwow, basically, because we need mm -hmm. to take action, enough talking, let's, let's do something about it. So what would be the vision of really of reconciliation and truth? It's a good, it's a good question, again. Um, I think any question you ask related to Indigenous peoples in Canada is always more complicated than what we first assume. And I think when you're listening and reading comments about what does that mean, I think we also have to ask for the people who are commenting, you know, why is it that, that you think this? Why is it that you think land back means I'm going to as just take over house? that to us you know our land was taken over yes treaties were signed you know and is it that you believe that you think that we're going to be just like that in saying oh well you know, this is how it was done to us we're going to do that to you that creates a, a vicious cycle and a vicious circle where we're not going to actually go anywhere and then you're just going to be stuck in that that kind of dynamic where it's like well that's not really that's not really the ideology and i think that when you're talking about the the land back component it's you know, all of the stuff that we have now, we created, not us as Indigenous people, but with the, the whole idea of settlements and people coming into Canada, that whole idea of ownership, I own this. And if you look at some of the treaty language, it wasn't about giving up ownership or title to the land. It was about how are we going to share these resources? You know, we have, we have treaties that talk about um, sharing the land. I think it's the dish with one spoon that exists in, um, in southern Ontario, where it's, you know, there's an agreement that our nations are not going to go hungry or are not going to go without. And we're going to share this area, geographic area of land for hunting, for fishing, for gathering, for stuff, for those kinds of things, so that there's always going to be something plentiful in the land so that nobody goes hungry and that we don't have um, those things. And those are those are nice ideologies, but you actually need, you know, the philosophers, you need the talkers, you need the people to say, okay, well, what, what does that mean? And to dig a lot deeper than who has title to this land. That, that stops the conversation that says there's a legal precedent for this or for that, and we don't need to go any further than that. But these are the choices that we get to, we get to make now in terms of like, well, what does land back? What does it mean? You know, came to Canada, um, you know, was given land. 
because a lot of the, a lot of times the properties and the crown land was given to immigrants to develop and to work the land and to have something so that they could contribute to you know it wasn't the canadian economy at the time but to contribute to that and it was the responsibility to develop that and to do things with that but who did they displace when they took over that piece of land you know indigenous people were placed on reservations on reserves and being told you can't leave the reserve you know some of our people needed a piece of paper to say that they could leave the reserve that was just 100 years ago we're not, we're not talking you know in the beginning of, of Canada, we're talking even, I think, I can't remember if it was in the 20s or the 30s, but those are the things that happen. So when, again, when you unpack the concept of even a land acknowledgement, you know, you're acknowledging that there were people here before year, before the, before settlers came, before we established these buildings, before we established these boundaries and these town lines. And there were, there was always um, like, I would call them like maybe natural geographic boundaries for where people settled. Um, you know, the Ojibwe people have a migration story of how we came from the East Coast and how things changed, how things over time. And I think the migration, I think it's years or so from the time when they talked about why they needed to move inland or stay on the coast and where they were going to end up. Because they talk about that in the Ojibwe creation story, that they will know the place when they find, I can't remember the exact words, but it was about where the food that grows on the water will be, which we interpret now as the wild rice, which grows along the Great Lakes and a lot of other places. And so that is a land-based component. So we say, you know, land acknowledgement, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated. The other aspect of that is, I would say that we don't ourselves as separate from the land. We don't see myself as different from the tree. You know, when we start talking about rights-based agendas or things that should should be in existence, you know, the waters need to be protected. We desperately need water to survive. How come we don't treat water in the same way that we treat corporations, um, you know, with rights and have, have you know, the, the right to exist in the state that it's in? You know, do we, does water have that? You know, we exist around it. We build dams. We bury rivers. We do all of these things to the land. And when you have that different concept that you are part of the land, you know, what happens to the land happens to indigenous people, or I see the connections between that, you know, so it's like, yes, we're acknowledging that people lived here before, but now what are we going to do with it? You know, people are still commenting on, oh, well, we need to, we need, now that we have acknowledged the indigenous people, we need to acknowledge all the other people that made a contribution to the establishment of Canada in its current state. And it's like, Yes, I acknowledge we do we do need to know the history. We need we need to know actually what happened. But what happens is when you bring when the indigenous people bring something forward and it starts to become accepted and it's become a part of the conversation, then it's like everybody else says, Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And then you kind of as you move away from that, you kind of it kind of loses its its impact or its initial impact that it could have had. Um, when we talk about those things. So I'm trying to remember the other piece that we're talking about, that whole land back thing. It's, it's an interesting and there's a complicated, I think, conversation. Um, but like I said, when I was telling talking to you last week, um, we need to have these difficult conversations and we need to talk about what it means from 
a variety of perspectives. Like I'm only one perspective. I don't represent Indigenous people in Canada. I will not say that I speak on behalf of anybody. I can. I will just um, commit to saying I will share my experience, what I understand it to mean to me, and what I understand it to be in relation to the people around me. So whether it's um, like you and I chatting, or whether I'm you know trying to help my child out learn something and understand something, it was always in that context. And I think that's one of the things that when we start talking about who has authority to say something or not say something, um, you know, I'm not going to step up and say I'm the authority. I, I I refuse to do that. It's all I can do is share my experience and my interpretation of that experience. Thank you. That really, I understand that it's complex and Canada is a very big country and there are many, many voices we need to hear and bring together. I think that what I understand, what, what remains out of these last words you said for me is we need all the voices to come together, to sit at a round table. Nobody has the authority and and just bring those experiences and perspectives and, and think for the common good, for the betterment of all. And that's where the real truth and reconciliation would take place, when all come together. And mm -hmm. we, we open ourselves to each other and we listen and we ponder and we see what do we do now with what is how we can do it together. It's not upon this or that person, this or that community, the government, not the people, or the people, not the government. It's it's about all uh, actors. This is what I see happening right now with different communities working together, indigenous mm -hmm. and non-indigenous. And in terms of, um, you know, how can other people help the indigenous communities? Because, you know, we don't have time today. There's you know, that's why I wanted to start this series of episodes inside the uh, Healing to Oneness podcast to really have different people talk about different aspects. Just is just a touch upon. We will never get to the depths of it, but just to touch upon different aspects. And we, I heard, and we do have issues in Canada with children of indigenous people and indigenous children. And we have people with girls and women and also with men and boys. And uh, there's racism in different uh, workplaces. Mm -hmm. uh, there's problems with healthcare. You talked about water. And there, it, for me, the way you spoke about water is a, in a very sacred way of talking about water and, and earth and land. And uh, there are lots of issues with pollution with water in reservations and uh, places where indigenous peoples live, so in Canada. And so there are many, many issues, heartbreaking issues, life-threatening issues, issues relating to deaths, not just to what happens to the living, but the fact that we are missing women, we are missing children, we are missing people, and communities are crying and there's still a lot of work to do with many parts of the uh, government and mm -hmm. the community. So uh, we see more and more things happening in the news. So as individuals, you know, what can we do about it? How can you are uh, 
from the very native friendship center you're an executive director and when i asked you you know what can we do what is the first thing and the most respectful thing to do when somebody wants to be of support to an indigenous community and an indigenous person what's the approach that you know is the best in the beginning and what is the need for the native what very native friendship center or how can people help can you mm -hmm. tell us more about the center too please? i think i think again um working with anybody is it can be complicated and one of the things that we have an issue i don't know if it's an issue with but it's it's one of the experience because of the um, disconnection that a lot of people have had with their own culture and their own identity and not knowing where they come from uh, or how their family would have been to the communities there's there's a there's a like the, that disconnection is really really challenging for people because we want to ask you know we as indigenous people we want to know who you are and we want to know where you come from we want to know where your family comes from because that that tells us a little bit about who you are you know the land you come from the family you come from what your roles and responsibility are in terms of the first piece and we don't have those kinds of conversations anymore because of the disconnection that has existed for a lot of indigenous people and they're trying to find those things so you know when somebody self-identifies and they can't answer those questions it makes them feel bad and then they feel um, they angry and frustrated because they can't talk about their connections Whereas you have people who have grown up and lived with the existence and the identity from the beginning. And it's almost as if it's another challenge when somebody says, well, where are you from? Who are you? Because, you know, that just has changed over the last 30 years in terms of who it's, it's basically asking you how you're connected. So when we have non-Indigenous people wanting to be supportive and wanting to help, it's, you know, I, I don't want to hear the questions. Oh, um, you know, my 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 great grandmother or my grandmother lived near a reservation when she was growing up. You know, it's, it's like non-Indigenous people are looking for a connection with Indigenous people, but you're already connected to us by occupying the land that you're on right now. And in in one sense of the word, it's like we need to we just need to have the conversations, but we have to have the conversations in a respectful way where it does leave individuals um, feeling feeling bad about themselves for knowing knowing something or not knowing something, and and that's that's a, um, I think when we're talking, I feel like saying uh, it's like you know we need the space to be able to help our people figure out who they are and find out how they're connected before we can talk to other people about that, and I think that's one of the reasons that organizations like the friendship centers exist in Canada. Um, they came out of, um, you know, a lot of the First Nations people were leaving the reserves and moving into the cities for jobs, for health care, for access to services, um, you know, in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And they had to create these organizations because there was no connection for them. There was no support for them once they got to the urban community. And so they found each other they met in basements, they met in churches, they met in any places that they could to create these organizations that exist today. And those organizations support the urban indigenous population wherever they exist in terms of, 
you know, places for connection, places for access to services, uh, looking, looking for those kinds of things. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons that I, I enjoy working in a friendship center myself. Um, you know, some, <laughs> some days I go in and I get none of my administrative work done because there are community members coming in or there's people that I haven't seen in a while and, you know, or they're asking questions. And so you end up a lot of visiting because you're sharing that information and you're trying to make sure that whatever knowledge I have, I can pass on to somebody who might need it at that time. And so that creates that community and, and it gets reinforced. And that's why, um, you know, like the Friendship Center, we have, you know, we have Canada Helps. We have that we raise, um, that I raise for engagements and from talking to people, goes in to support those individuals who are looking to reconnect, who are reclaiming their identity, and who are looking at reconciliation from their individual perspectives. So we, we need to have, you know, supports for culture, supports for language, supports for things that that support and reinforce that identity that was um, severed and that was taken away um, from so many of our people so long ago. How's that? Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was, um, I will put here a banner. Uh, you, you said that if people want to support, they could uh, support the nonprofit charity work you do. Yep. Uh, and uh, for those who live in Canada, they can join eTransfer to finance at bnfc.ca. So Canada helps, and I'm I'm gonna put a link in the comments um, and and that information so people can. Um... And you know, I think it's really important to support your your local areas too. So Barry Native Friendship Center is really specific to Barry, but there's mm -hmm. also the uh, I think there's the Orange Shirt Society, and then there's the Indian Residential School. So there's a couple other societies that do things on a more national level. And I think those are also important to support, but it's really good. And I think that would be a really good start for people is to find out what is happening in your local area and how you can financially support those particular areas. Because there's different organizations and people who are in the grassroots and on the ground, you know, they know better what to do in their areas. Just like I have a better idea about what, we, what can be done in Barrie. Before we um, before we go, Samantha, thank first of all, thank you so much for being here for accepting to take one hour of your time and share with us and be with us and have these a start of conversations. I would love to have more conversations with you over time. Mm -hmm. And my last question is today in this moment of your life, our culture, Canada, and the world, you know? I know I said big things, but uh, what is your message? What does your heart, or, you know, what do you want us to know today? What comes to mind and what I, what I, what actually what I, I feel about this stuff is, you know, we have to be able to take care of each other. Um, and that's one, and that's, you know, not, not being the person who says I need help and I need care, but what actually can you do and what can you give from yourself to help take care of somebody else? And that's, you know, that's, and in, in that, in that thing, it's, it's, it's what are your gifts that you can share with the world that you can share with your family that I think is, is like, that really is at the heart of the matter for me. 
and it's what I, you know, it is what I aspire to do because I'm human. Um, I have many failings and it's, it's good to be reminded of these things um, every so often in that, you know, how can you give from your own heart? How can you give from your own heart? Let's stay with that and use this day as something to do about it. Thank you for um, the messages you have shared with us. Thank you for all the stories you have imparted and you keep imparting. I do love your voice and how you speak uh, the stories. You know, one thing that I heard recently is that um, there was a, um, a, a case where an indigenous elder was talking to somebody who said that they owned the land and they, they, were, they wanted to keep owning the land and the indigenous community, you know, was fighting to, um, to get it back. <clears throat> I don't know the details. All I know and what, what really struck me was the question of the elder, which was, if this is your land, where are your stories? Mm -hmm. And that question of where are your stories um, is a very good one for all of us. If we don't have them, we can ask. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> we can ask. We can ask. Thank you so much. Wishing you a great day. Thank you for listening and watching. Please share if you find this helpful. It would really help other people know more and understand more of what's happening in Canada, what uh, indigenous peoples in Canada uh, need and are about, at least a little bit of what we touched today with Samantha. And if you have any questions, Samantha and I are here for you. Just uh, leave us some comments and um, we will get back to you in any way we can. Thank you. Thank you. If what you heard touched you or helped you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite place for tuning in. Pay it forward by sharing it with others. I'll be here for you with the next episode. I'm Andrea Petrut, your Healing Through Oneness show host. Remember, we are connected. We are one.